What's the last conflict you were part of? What was it about? What were you responsible for in the conflict? And what was its root cause? If you're not a Christian, we're very glad you're here. I wonder how you analyze the root causes of the conflicts that crop up in your life from time to time. What's responsible ultimately for the friction between you and other people? The passages for last week's sermon and this week's sermon are both about conflict between the world and Christians. This conflict ultimately boils down to one issue, which you can summarize in one word, sin. Sin is the root of the conflict between the world and Christians, and sin ultimately is the root of every conflict between people. Our passage for this morning is John 16, verses 1 to 15. The passage is on page 902 of the Pew Bibles. By the way, if you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand, please feel free to take one of those home with you as a gift. Uh, a couple of weeks from now, Mark will pick back up his series in Matthew's Gospel with the rest of chapter 11. That part of Matthew takes place about two years previous in Jesus' ministry to what we're studying now. Back then, earlier in his ministry, Jesus was gradually exposing people to the truth of who he is and what he came to do. But here in our passage, he's preparing his disciples for his imminent departure that's about to take place through his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Take a look at verse 8 in our passage. John 16, verse 8. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit whom he will send to his disciples after his ascension. He says in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here is a courtroom conflict with sin at its center. We'll look at this conflict in detail soon. But for now, as a way into the passage as a whole, I just want us to camp out on the concept of sin for a moment. Sin has fallen on hard times lately. I don't mean sin itself, but the concept of sin. Today, the word sin sounds trivial or weightless. At most, sin might apply to something that some very bad people do sometimes. It surely can't have anything to do with me. Almost 30 years ago, in his book, Technopoly, Neil Postman argued that the concept of sin has disappeared from our society. Why? Postman says, it's because our society serves a God, though not the biblical God, and this God has its own priests whom we submit to. Here's Postman. Some of our priest experts are called psychiatrists. Some psychologists, some sociologists, some statisticians. The God they serve does not speak of righteousness or goodness or mercy or grace. Their God speaks of efficiency, precision, objectivity. And that is why such concepts as sin and evil disappear in technopoly they come 
from a moral universe that is irrelevant to the theology of expertise. And so the priests of Technopoly call sin social deviance, which is a statistical concept. And they call evil psychopathology, which is a medical concept. Sin and evil disappear because they cannot be measured and objectified and therefore cannot be dealt with by experts. But the problem is calling sin by other names doesn't make it go away. We all experience the effects of sin, the fallout from sin, every day. One of those effects of sin is that sin doesn't want to be exposed, so it motivates us to hide. And because sin doesn't want to be exposed, it motivates us to resent and reject anyone who would expose our sin. That's the root of the conflict between the world and Christians. You won't understand that conflict. You won't understand any conflict. You especially won't understand your own internal conflict if you don't understand sin. Keep that in mind as I read our passage. John chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
Similarly to last week, here's the question that our passage answers. How can we persevere in a hostile world? I'll have three points that summarize the text's answers. First, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Jesus teaches us to expect opposition in verses 1 to 4. Look again with me at those verses. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. First one carries a real warning. Don't fall away. Persecution aims at getting professing Christians to renounce our faith. Sometimes it works. If that leads you to wonder whether Christians can lose our salvation, I would encourage you to meditate on 1 John 2 verse 19, which is the other side of this coin. Different sports have a different ready stance. It was a long time ago now, but when I was very young, I did karate. There's a kind of ready stance you begin from. It was also a long time ago now, but when I was young, I also played baseball, and I remember the different defensive stances you're supposed to start from, depending on what position you're playing. The point of a ready stance is to prepare you for whatever might come your way at a kind of split-second notice. In these verses, in this whole passage, in the passage from last week, and really in the whole chapters that we're studying this year, Jesus is giving us a spiritual ready stance. He is telling us where to set our weight. He's telling us what to do with our hands in order to be ready for what's coming. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus names specific forms that this opposition and persecution is going to take. Uh, it will involve being put out of synagogues. It will even involve being put to death. Christianity began as a movement within Judaism, and the first Jewish Christians were persecuted by their fellow Jews. So you can think of the stoning of Stephen from Acts chapter 7, or Saul's persecution of the church. Jesus' words in verse 3 are haunting. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Some of those who put Christians to death will think that by murdering Christians, they're worshiping God. But the irony is, it isn't the persecutor who offers a sacrifice to God. It's the martyr. It's the one who bears faithful witness to Christ, even at the cost of their life. John 21.19, near the very end of the gospel, explains Jesus' prediction of the precise manner in which Peter would be martyred. That verse says, This he said to show by what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. Verse 3 teaches us that sincerity is no guarantee of being right. A clear conscience is no guarantee that you're doing God's will. Religious fervor is no proof of God's approval. 
Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled or dismayed by the apparent sincerity and piety of those who oppose and persecute Christians. Especially don't be fooled or dismayed by the sincerity and piety of those whose religion is called secularism. Secularism is every bit as much a faith as Christianity is. Its moral claims are just as absolute. Secularism is not no religion, but a religion that hides its religiousness. So don't evaluate truth based on how many votes it gets. Don't let opposition from the world knock you off balance. As a Christian, you might suffer all kinds of exclusion from people in the world who oppose Christ. You might be forsaken by family members, frozen out by friends, shunned in the workplace. Find comfort and courage and strength in the fact that God has welcomed you in Christ and he will never cast you out. Don't fear exclusion by the world for the sake of Christ. Augustine has a beautiful reflection on the relationship between Christ, his people, and the world in these verses. Augustine said, Those who could not be without him could be cast out with him by those who would not wish to be in him. Those who could not be without him. What a profound way to describe what it means to be a Christian. You can't be without Christ, even if it means suffering, even if it means exclusion, even if it means giving up friends, family, job, or anything else. Can't be without him. Instead of fearing exclusion from the world, we should rejoice to suffer the same fate Christ suffered. As the author of Hebrews exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now at different times in history, the political and social standing of Christians has varied dramatically. So in the fourth century, Christianity first became tolerated in the Roman Empire, and then it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and very quickly after that happened, the persecuted became the persecutors. There is no biblical justification whatsoever for Christians using coercive force to persecute those who reject Christ or oppose the faith. The church wields the power of the keys to speak on behalf of heaven, not the power of the sword. Then in verse 4, Jesus again tells us why he's telling us all this. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Road trip season is upon us. Many of us in the coming months will drive to the beach or to visit family and friends a few states away. And when you take that road trip, you almost certainly are going to use a map, whether of the old school print variety or far more likely the, the, you know, the map app on your phone. When you use that map, you wouldn't use it or Google Maps if you didn't trust it. We trust those maps so much that we forget that they're made by humans, they're compiled by surveys, they're programmed into computers. They are fallible, but they very rarely fail. But every time you arrive safely at your destination, that map is proved to be trustworthy. In these verses, Jesus is giving us a map, but it's a map of the future. It's a map of what will happen 
to those who profess faith in him. And his purpose in announcing what will happen in advance. Think back for the original disciples. His purpose in announcing all this in advance is that when it happens, their trust in him will be strengthened because what he said would happen, happened. Jesus isn't guessing here. He isn't weighing up probabilities. Instead, he's confidently declaring precisely what will take place. He is casually displaying a kind of knowledge of the future that only God has. So when opposition comes, our faith shouldn't be shaken, but strengthened. Everything is taking place just like he said it would. His words are coming true. So with these words, Jesus is laboring to keep us from being shocked or caught off guard by opposition. Just the other day, I was walking down East Capitol Street, and there was a man and woman walking toward me about 30 feet away. Out of nowhere, a loud series of barks erupted from an as-yet-unseen terrier. Tiny little dog, huge piercing barks. And the guy walking toward me was so shocked, he almost fell over. It was like a jolt of electricity went through him. Perhaps many of you have fallen victim to the same terrier. <laughs> I think maybe I have. I've felt the jolt. Now, the problem isn't so much the barking as that it caught him off guard. He didn't see the dog. He didn't see it coming. Brothers and sisters, if you want to remain spiritually stable when opposition comes, you have to see it coming. Expect opposition. Expect conflict with the world. But... Will the outcome of this conflict ultimately depend upon our abilities and our resources? Point two, pray for conviction and conversion. Pray for conviction and conversion. This is our takeaway from the rest of verse 4 through verse 11. Let's look first at verses 4 to 6. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In verses 4 to 6, Jesus explains why it's only now that he's telling them more about the opposition they're going to face and how he'll provide for his disciples in his physical absence. During his earthly ministry, his disciples were with him, so they were safe. But now they're about to suffer the double trial of his physical absence and persecution. But even though Jesus is telling the disciples exactly what they need to hear, exactly when they need to hear it, they just aren't getting it. They don't ask Jesus, as he rebukes them in verse 5, where are you going? Because they're not interested in what this means for Jesus. They're not interested in the purpose of what he's accomplishing. Their narrow self-interest is blinding them to what will prove to be their good. There's a phrase that recently found its way into our family's shared vocabulary. It comes from our six-year-old daughter, Lucy. A few months ago, the flu worked its way through our family, and Lucy had it pretty bad. But even worse, from her perspective, was the bitter taste of the medicine that she had to take. When she first tasted the medicine, she cried out in bitterness of soul, 
what is my life? <laughs> Kristen and I just heard that around the corner from the kitchen. <laughs> so now Kristen and I say that phrase to each other from time to time. <laughs> when the kitchen's a wreck at the end of the day and the kids are melting down, what is my life? <laughs> Poor Lucy taking that medicine could not taste the long-term good that was coming, she could only taste the bitter pain now. What is my life? There was temporary pain in the way of lasting good. Temporary pain, lasting good. That is the structure of the whole Christian life. That's what we experience when we fight to put sin to death and strive after holiness. That's the structure of our experience when we persevere in faith despite opposition and our faith is purified and strengthened by the trial. And temporary pain, lasting good, describes our whole perseverance to the end. We will have pain now, but that pain will produce in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When Jesus is talking here to the disciples, all they can taste is the bitter medicine. They can't taste the good that's coming. Jesus says in verse 6, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow had filled their heart like a torrential downpour fills your windshield in your car and they couldn't see the good that Jesus was holding out right in front of them because of the sorrow that had blinded them. If you're not a Christian, how do you weigh present pain against future gain? What are you willing to suffer now in the hope of gaining something better later? How confident are you that that better thing later will come? And if it does, how long do you think it'll last? In verse 7, Jesus tells the disciples something that, to their grief-stopped ears, must have sounded like nonsense. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's a stunning statement. It was better for Jesus' first disciples, and it is ultimately better for us that Jesus would be physically absent so that he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell us. It is better for us now to have the Spirit living in us than Jesus living among us. Do you believe that? Verses 8 to 11 explain at least some of the reasons why this is the case. Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So verses 8 to 11 tell us what the Spirit will do when he comes. In verse 7, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, which is a term with a legal flavor. It can mean advocate, like counsel for the defense. But here Jesus flips the legal metaphor and promises that the Holy Spirit will actually prosecute God's case on behalf of the disciples. 
So Jesus has just been talking about how the world will oppose and exclude and even kill Christians. As we see throughout the book of Acts, the world is going to put Christians on trial and even find them guilty. But Jesus is saying here that the Holy Spirit will turn the tables. The world thinks they're putting Christians on trial. But the Holy Spirit is putting the world on trial. And the Spirit will secure a conviction. Verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice in verse 7 who it is that the Holy Spirit comes to. Verse 7, I will send him to you, to the apostles, to the first disciples. So the Spirit comes to the apostles, and when he comes, he convicts the world. So how will he do this? He'll do it through the apostles' preaching and through the witness of all Christians who are filled with the Spirit and bear witness to him. The apostles will preach the good news about Jesus, and, and the Spirit will make that preaching effective. He will convict in the sense that he will establish the world's guilt. By enabling the apostles' preaching, the Holy Spirit will publish abroad the true verdict about Jesus that will contradict and overturn the wrong verdict about Jesus that the world passed when it crucified him. But this conviction won't just be external, it will also be internal. Here's an example of the Spirit's convicting work. It follows on from the reading we had in Acts chapter 2 earlier. That's the day of Pentecost. It's when Jesus' promise he made here was fulfilled. The Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples. Peter preached the good news. And here's the effect of the preaching that shows the Spirit's work. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Conviction of sin means coming to know and feel that you're in the wrong. Conviction of sin means coming to feel the sting of your own conscience rightly testifying against you. To be convicted of sin is to know you're hopelessly wrong and to be driven to seek a solution. If you've experienced any measure of that and you're not a believer in Jesus, what have you done with that conviction? Have you opened yourself up to it at all or have you tried to stuff it back into a box? Have you listened to your conscience or have you tried to silence it, hit the snooze button on it? What have you done when conviction has come knocking? The next three verses in our passage spell out this conviction in more detail. They give a reason for each charge about which the Holy Spirit brings conviction. So, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So the Spirit will convict the world for sin because of its unbelief. How is unbelief the reason for the world being convicted of sin? Because unbelief is the locked door that keeps forgiveness of sins out. When someone is confronted with the good news about Jesus, the only thing that will keep them in a state of condemnation is if they reject the message. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
Here Jesus refers to his return to the Father in heaven as a shorthand way of speaking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's not just a departure, it's an effectual one. It's the means by which he's going to secure salvation. In his death, Jesus was condemned as a criminal. His crucifixion was a mockery. It made a spectacle of him. His crucifixion held him up to contempt. He was being treated as the living embodiment of all that is unrighteous, all that is worthless, all that is vile. But that was precisely the wrong verdict. Jesus isn't the scum of the earth. He's the only perfectly righteous person who has ever lived. So the Spirit will come and convict the world about the wrong sentence they passed concerning Jesus's righteousness. Then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. On the cross, the world thought they were condemning Jesus, but God was condemning Satan. Satan thought the cross was his triumph, but it was actually his undoing. As the Puritan Thomas Manton said, on the cross, Satan triumphed visibly, but Christ triumphed invisibly. All three of these verses speak about a reversal that the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish. And that's a reversal that we all desperately need. We ourselves have all committed a cosmic reversal with disastrous consequences. God is our creator and ruler, but we've all rejected him. We've all rebelled against him. We've all tried to act as if we are our own creators. We've all lived our lives as if we are our own rulers. We've all passed our own verdicts on God. Absent. Non-existent. Immoral. Petty tyrant. Those are the sentences we've all pronounced against God. But God will have his day in court. And he will not be the defendant, but the judge. He will be the last judge, the final and definitive judge. And a sentence of eternal condemnation is what we all deserve. It is what everyone who does not trust in Christ will receive. And that sentence will be carried out throughout eternity. But as we've already been considering, Jesus came to reverse our verdict on God and to reverse God's verdict on us. Jesus came into this world in order to die in our place, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead and return to his Father in order to enable everyone who believes to be right with God. Jesus bore the condemnation we all deserve in order to give to everyone who believes the righteousness and life that he deserves. If you don't trust in Jesus, then in order to be right with God, you need to reverse your verdict on yourself and on the world and on Jesus. You need to be convicted, convinced of your own sinfulness. You need to become aware that there's nothing in yourself that you can do to make yourself right with God. And you need to recognize that you've been seeing yourself and this world and Jesus upside down. Turn to him in faith. Ask his spirit to convict you of what is right about Jesus and commit yourself to Christ in faith. For everyone here who professes faith in Christ, when's the last time you experienced conviction of sin? What did you do 
in response to that conviction. And since experiencing that conviction, have you experienced any growth in overcoming that sin? If it's been any length of time since you've been convicted of your sin, you might meditate this week on Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. No secret sin is a secret from God. Or you might pray this prayer from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Brothers and sisters, members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, how can you persevere in a hostile world? Pray for the Spirit to do His work of conviction and conversion. There's a wonderful example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul, whom we've already considered was a persecutor of the church, tells us the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God saved Paul to make an example out of him. Paul's saying, if God can save me, he can save anyone. Church persecutors can become church planters. Those who tried to take the lives of Christians can come to give their lives for Christ. There is no hopeless case with the Holy Spirit at the job. In all our work, the Spirit is at work. So be encouraged and be emboldened to publicly represent Christ without fear. Pray for the Spirit's work and work in the power of the Spirit and pray especially for those who are the agents of any opposition or hardship you might face for being a Christian. Who have you stopped praying for lately? Is there anyone whose conversion you have functionally given up on? The Spirit can give a new heart, new eyes, new life. Keep praying. The Holy Spirit can do what none of us can. So verses 4 to 11 unfold the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. But Jesus also promises that the Spirit will minister to the church, specifically in and through the apostles. That brings us to point three. Listen to the Spirit. How can we persevere in a hostile world? Listen to the Spirit. Jesus instructs us about this in verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. My Hebrew professor in seminary, Dr. Gentry, used to always drop verse 12 on us when he'd given us some particularly obscure verb paradigm. Our brains were just mush. You wanted to rub it in. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. <laughs> and then he'd let out this evil chuckle. <laughs> like Dr. Gentry, Jesus knew his disciples' limits. And so he promised to send his spirit, not only to convict the world, but to instruct and illumine his disciples. Jesus sent the spirit so that the spirit would speak for him. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And so his solution is to send the spirit. The spirit speaks for Jesus. The spirit speaks with no less authority than Jesus does. The spirit speaks and we all must Listen, look at the middle of verse 13. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then the middle of verse 14, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does it mean that the spirit hears and takes. Well, as far as hearing goes, the spirit doesn't have ears. The spirit doesn't have a body. The spirit doesn't need the father or the son to somehow communicate something through some medium that comes to him through a distance. No, the spirit is God by nature. So to use a large but necessary word, the language here is anthropomorphic. That is, it's borrowed from human experience. Anthropomorphic. The point of all these sayings is this. What the Spirit has to say, he has from another. Namely, from the Son. And then as verse 15 tells us, what the Son possesses originates from the Father. So here we see another example of what we saw in last week's passage. The Spirit speaks from another because the Spirit exists from another eternally. The Spirit's teaching comes from the one from whom his being comes. Here's how Cyril, the pastor of the church in Alexandria, Egypt, in the 5th century, explained these verses. I think he's, his comments are helpful and right. Cyril speaks of how the Spirit has his being eternally from the Son, ultimately from the Son and the Father. Cyril says, Since the Holy Spirit proceeds through him by nature as his own Spirit with all his perfect qualities... The Spirit is said to take what is His. If this has been expressed in words that are rather earthly, we should not be scandalized, but we should rather rightly blame the poverty of our own language, since it cannot express as it should what is fitting for God. After all, what speech does not fall short of his ineffable nature and glory. 
Cyril is not saying that Scripture is untrustworthy. He's presuming it's trustworthy, and what he's saying is no human speech, not even the words of Scripture, can exhaust God's eternal being. They cannot give us a complete, total grasp of who God is. The reality of who God is in his eternal Trinitarian life is always greater than we can conceive and always greater than we can say. That's why scripture uses words from human life like hear or take to bear witness to the reality that the spirit eternally exists from the Father and the Son. Now, when the spirit comes... And he takes what he's received and gives it to us. What does that mean he does? Well, look again at verse 13. He will guide you into all the truth, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. The only way that statement isn't blasphemy is if Jesus is the eternal Son of God, if Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is saying it's right for the Spirit to glorify me. That's what you need. You need the Spirit to tell you what will glorify me. So verse 14 and verse 13, what the Spirit does. As we saw last week, this promise applies first and foremost to the apostles, the eyewitness of Christ's ministry. The Spirit guided the apostles into all the truth, and so their written testimony continues to guide the church into all the truth we need. The Spirit would reveal to the apostles what we need to know in order to live faithfully between Christ's ascension and his return. And the Spirit would also reveal to the apostles what will happen when Christ comes back. He promised that during his earthly ministry, and the writings the apostles have given us tell us more detail in books like 1 Thessalonians and Revelation. So in guiding the apostles into all the truth, the Spirit granted a deeper knowledge of Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he will do, and how we should live in union with him. So what does it mean to listen to the Spirit today? It fundamentally means to read, hear, meditate on, pray over, and live out His inspired Word. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures, so pray that He will illumine your own mind and heart to understand the Scriptures. Pray that the Spirit would empower you to live out His Word. Pray that the Spirit would lead you into all truth. How can you listen to the Spirit? Don't just read Scripture, but meditate on it. If you are eating a salad, can you simply stuff all the lettuce, all the spinach into your mouth and then try to swallow? Not if you intend to continue breathing. You have to chew. And meditation is spiritual chewing on the word. Thinking, considering, praying, keeping it on your mind instead of simply letting it flash by. Too often we Christians, myself certainly included, treat our engagement with Scripture more like a drive through fast food meal we just toss back rather than a 10-course feast we savor and linger over. Now, that might seem discouraging to you if you feel like because of your responsibilities in life, especially, say, mothers of young children, uh, how on earth can I savor and linger over the Word? 
Well, there, I'm not talking about just a picture-perfect quiet time where you have your coffee neatly poised, your Bible laid out, sun filtering through the window, your journal open. That's nice work if you can get it. And if you can strive for that, strive for it. But I'm talking about writing down a verse on a note card, putting it on the wall in front of your sink, and meditating and memorizing as you do the dishes. That's a way to linger. That's a way to savor. That's a way to meditate. If you can do the picture-perfect quiet time, great. If you can't, if it's difficult for you in this season, find ways to meditate, to linger, to savor, to chew on God's Word as part of the regular rhythm of your life. When you meet opposition or persecution for being a Christian, that will put pressure on your grasp of the truth. As one scholar put it, it's hard to believe that a cause is truly God's when it seems to meet with no success and all power is on the other side. When persecution loads up more and more weight against your faith, what can bear that added weight? I'll tell you one thing. When your faith is on trial, you don't want a vague suspicion that Scripture says something somewhere about God working all things for your good. No, you want Romans 8.28, chapter and verse, written so firmly in your mind that it is more securely fixed than your address or your phone number. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you don't want just one verse, you want a whole army of verses. You want an armory to meet every attack. You want a storehouse to supply every need. So if you're in a season of relative peace and prosperity, stock up on scripture. Sock it away for hard seasons. Stockpile scripture like a squirrel hiding away nuts before winter. Memorizing passages and chapters and whole books of scripture is a huge help here. So is repeated reading, praying through passages, and discussing scripture together with a fellow believer. As we saw in Jesus' words in the first four verses, we need help to remember the truth and to cling to the truth when opposition arises. We need to remember this is just what Jesus said would happen. So as a church, we should all labor to become spiritual tailors, spiritual seamstresses, who are able to patch the holes that trials tear in each other's faith and each other's memories. You want to grow in being able to step into someone's experience and circumstances. Spot the hole that a trial has torn in their faith. Discern its size and shape. And then have a patch from Scripture ready that will fit that gap. How can we persevere in a hostile world? Expect opposition. Pray for conviction and conversion, and listen to the Spirit together. Consider verse 14 again. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <clears throat> I always read before bed, and I have a habit from time to time 
of sharing quotes with Kristen of what I'm reading. Depending how close to bedtime this is, she might not be in the most receptive mood. She may choose rather to be able to fall off to sleep than to hear whatever quote I would like to share. My efforts to take what is from that author and glorify that author by sharing it and trying to encourage and instruct Christian, well, it's maybe not always the best time. But in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he takes what is Christ's, he glorifies him by declaring it to us, and he enables that truth to find a home in us. He enables that truth to find a home even in the hearts of those who right now are persecuting Christians. Praise God for the gift of the Spirit and rely on the Spirit to sustain you amid opposition. All praise to Him whose power imparts the love of God within our hearts the spirit of all truth and peace, the fount of joy and holiness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who glorifies your son, by declaring to us what belongs to him. We thank you, Father, for enriching us by your Spirit and granting us a share in Christ himself. Enable us to persevere this week. Enable us to glorify you by declaring what belongs to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.